and I'm like, I, I said, y'all, the 1030 group claps so much better than you guys. You need to wake up. You need to get going. So they clapped a little better the second time around. But what a, what a praise to God that, um, that that money came in that way through folks' generosity. If you were here clapping going, oh, sweet, I don't have to put anything in the offering, then you and I need to talk after the service because you have a really bad attitude. And uh, we, uh, we are thankful that we have, uh, we have that opportunity to support those guys. It's going to be an amazing learning experience for them and, and trip for them. So I want to uh, put a little picture up on the screen, if I could, Peggy. Um, in your bulletin, and on the back page in the lower right-hand column, uh, there's a mention of 2028, which is our annual service day. If you're new to Green Tree, what we typically do on Father's Day weekend, which is the third weekend in June this year, uh, on that Saturday morning, as a gift to our dads for Father's Day weekend, we all get together and we work for half a day, which doesn't sound like much of a Father's Day gift, except we're not working for ourselves, we're working for other folks. So literally, we will we'll meet about 8 o'clock in the morning and through roughly about 2 or so in the afternoon, we will spread out all over St. Louis and we will what's called serve our neighbor. And so we just want to do two things this morning. The first is we want to give you a heads up for the date. We want to ask you to, to mark it on your calendar, save the date. We're not, we're not registering this morning to sign up to volunteer, but we do want you to be aware of that date. But the second thing we want to do and why this picture is on the screen so we want to talk a little bit about part of a, of a niche aspect of this day, which is called serve your neighbor. If you have friends that live on your street uh, or somebody that's in your office or somebody that you guys go to, go to school with that needs help on some level, we want to be able to personalize some of our service projects. Some of our ministry opportunities that day are with, with ministry partners and we just, we're helping a ministry. But there are other opportunities we have to help an individual, to come alongside one or two people, like the, the Hoppers small group, that Earl and Mary Hoppers small group helped uh, Dave and Pat Fisher. There's Pat down here. Uh, they'd been through some really difficult health problems in the last year. And they just needed somebody to come and help kind of mulch and, and, and do flowers and kind of get the yard ready for the summer. And so the community group said, that's who we want to go and serve. So the point we bring that up today is we want you to start thinking about if there are people in your life, they, whether they go to Green Tree or not, doesn't matter. Um, if there are people in your life or a person in your life that could use some help for half a day's work with about 10 or 12 people, whether it's in their house, in their yard, whatever the case may be. Uh, so if you know of a serve your neighbor opportunity, we would like to hear about it. And we're, the, the registration for that is open, correct, Peggy? How do they go about that? That's what a pastor should actually know. Do they go to the website? It, okay, all right, great. So go to the website, click on the 2028 link, uh, or if you know Nancy Prada, you see her, have her phone number, you can call her. She is organizing all that. There you go. The pastor should read the bulletin occasionally. That would be really, really helpful. So... Um, so save that date, and if you have some of those projects, let us know about those. So I'm going to do something this morning that I've only done two other times in my ministry career. I, uh, this is my sermon that I had prepared. Uh, here's my outline. I actually like the sermon. I think it's a pretty good sermon, and I'm not going to preach it. Um, I'm going to preach it later on this month. But I was reintroduced to a story this week. I was with some friends in Denver, Colorado, 
And uh, I was reintroduced to a story that Edgar Allan Poe wrote in 1841. Uh, and it's called The Descent into the Maelstrom. The Maelstrom is a, a word that comes out of Norway. The, most of the more fundamental meaning of the word is to grind. And Edgar Allan Poe, when he visited Norway as a young man, was taken to a mountaintop in the northwestern corner of the, uh, of the country, and he looked out over what is the archipelago, uh, a series of islands that are just off the coast of Norway. And in this particular place, and you can go and you can see it today, um, Poe looked out and was explained to him that in just this one area that's about between half a mile and a mile wide between a couple of the islands is this maelstrom. And a maelstrom is what you and I would call a whirlpool. And on calm days when the weather is good and simple and the breeze is light and it's not, you know, the seas are not disrupted, there are some small whirlpools that are in this area. When the wind picks up, when the weather changes, when the, when the weather gets foul, a, what, ha, what small whirlpools end up doing is turning into a gigantic whirlpool to where literally ships, and, and not just fishing boats, but ships over the centuries would steer clear of this area because if you got caught in this whirlpool, there was no way out. Even for a large ship, you were going to meet your doom. And so Poe was exposed to this. He, he saw this, uh, this uh, natural wonder, and his creative mind went to work. And what we have today, what we've had now for almost two centuries, is the story, Descent into the Maelstrom. I was reintroduced to the story this week by a friend of mine, and I would consider myself fairly well-read. Uh, I, I like stories, whether they're true stories or, or fiction. Um, I read a lot, and I rarely have a story impact me the way this story hit me this week. And so when I got home, I was thinking about it and praying about it, and there were so many things in this story that, um, that just seemed to tie into to my life as a disciple of Jesus in a good way and in a bad way. And I couldn't let it go, or God wouldn't let it go in my heart. And so as I said, twice in my life before, I, I've gotten up to preach, and I've said, it's not this, it's got to be this. And so I walked in this morning, I said to Peggy Dimitri, I was this close to changing, you know, tearing up my sermon this morning and going in a completely different direction. She goes, oh, that would have been fun. And I uh, said, well, yeah, maybe for you, because you're not the one tearing up the sermon. But that was just reinforced that this is, I think, maybe what I'm supposed to do. So the uh, passage is not in your bulletin. It won't be on the screen. Uh, eventually, I'll share some verses with you, but I want to tell you the story, Descent into the Maelstrom, as best I can. would also encourage you to read Poe's story. It's only 11 pages long. There are three brothers who lived in the fishing village uh, where the story takes place, and all the local fishermen would steer clear of the Maelstrom, of the, of the kind of the, the two islands uh, off the coast where this whirlpool uh, was was churning continually because of the different eddies and tides that just it naturally be, was a very dangerous place. So even on calm days, the fishermen would not venture through this area except for these three brothers. They had grown up as fishermen. Their fathers were fishermen before them. Their grandfathers before them and their great-grandfathers before them. They grew up in a fishing family. And they had figured out as young men how to navigate the very edge of the whirlpool so on a calm day they could circumvent around the maelstrom and get out into a fishing area where as Poe records in his story 
they would catch a week's worth of fish in a day. The reason that this part of the ocean was so rich for harvesting fish was because no fishermen would venture out in that direction because it was unsafe. So on one particular day, the three brothers headed out to sea, and it was a calm day. It was a beautiful day. The sun was shining. The breeze was, was very, very light, and they began to make their way around the maelstrom and out into the uh, ocean, the northern Atlantic, to fish, and they had a wonderful day, and they caught lots and lots of fish. And as the day progressed, it was time to, to pull up uh, the nets and to head back into shore, and so they did so, fully loaded down. And one of the brothers noticed a slight wisp of wind coming from a different direction. And as he turned and he looked back over the horizon, he could see just a sliver of the horizon where it had been bright and beautiful and blue was now as black as the blackest night. And they realized that a storm was coming. And within a moment or two, the winds began to howl. And the storm began to blow. And what had been a few little whirlpools here and there, and something that you had to be careful of but could navigate, became, became this giant maelstrom that was vicious and was unending and was going to be, in fact, their certain doom. And they were too close to be able to turn back. And they began to shout instructions to one another over the, the crash of the waves and the wind, uh, trying desperately to figure out a way to navigate themselves out of dangers. They, they they were, they were men of the sea, although they, they were relatively young. Uh, the oldest brother probably somewhere uh, in his early 40s. The younger brother probably somewhere in his, in his late 20s. But they were, they, these boys had grown up on the sea. And now they, they were men of the sea. And if anybody could work their way out of it, if anybody had enough ingenuity, if anybody were savvy enough to be able to figure out a way to get out of the maelstrom, it was these three fishermen. But as they fought and as they, they tried to shout instructions over the waves, as they used all of their effort and all of their energy and all of their wherewithal to try and avoid disaster, they simply could not. And they crept closer and closer to the outside edges of the maelstrom until eventually they found that they were going in a mile-wide circle and they were trapped and there was no way out. As this began to happen, uh, the winds began to blow with hurricane-like force. The way the author describes it in the story, he says that the roar of the, of the ocean at that moment would make the falls at Niagara seem very quiet in comparison. And here they are caught and captured in the midst of the storm. And so now they need to begin to think, is there any way to survive? What's the logical thing for us to do and so the youngest brother quickly grabbed what rope he could find and he strapped himself to the mast of the fishing boat uh, you've perhaps seen some movies where uh, you're looking at, at sailing vessels back a, a century or two and someone in a storm will actually strap themselves to the mast of the of the ship uh, because it's in the middle it's central and it, it's strong it's made of sturdy timber and it has a great chance of surviving the storm but as the winds grew more violent and more violent, and they began to be going faster and faster, the mast of the fishing boat snapped off, and the younger brother was hurled to a certain death in the middle of the maelstrom. And now only the middle brother and the older brother are left. And as the story continues, the middle brother goes to the center of the ship, 
and he finds the O-ring that's right next to the mast, which is a metal O-ring. It's about that big in size, and when it lays down, it, there's a groove in the deck, and it lays down flat, but you can pull it out, and you can attach ropes to it, or you can hold on to it. And the oldest brother, or the middle brother, excuse me, grabbed on and held on to it for dear life, all the while terrified and, and just gripped with fear because of his circumstances, not looking around him at all, simply keeping his eyes tightly shut and hoping beyond hope that there would be some miracle that could possibly save him. It was within a few minutes that his older brother came up beside him and he said, when I, when I looked up and we were nose to nose and we, we couldn't hear each other screaming at each other, we were that close, the waves were so loud, he said, I could see the terror in my brother's eyes. I could see that he wasn't my brother anymore, but rather he had become a madman. And they began to wrestle and grapple for the O-ring. And eventually the older brother went out and he was able to grasp the, the O-ring and to hold on because that seemed to be the only logical thing to do at that moment. And so now the middle brother is left to his own devices with nothing apparently around him to grasp onto except towards the back at the boathouse, an old wooden round water barrel. So the second brother makes his way back to the, to the, to the water barrel and he grasps onto it for dear life. He, he wraps, there's a rope there, and he kind of wraps his arm around it, and now he's holding on. And it's at that moment, he says, that I realized I was going to die. I realized that the situation was hopeless, and I came face to face with my mortality. But he said, at that moment, the fear began to subside. And at that moment, my curiosity overtook me. And I began to look at the waves around me. I began to study the whirlpool. I began to, to watch this instrument of my death to see if there were something I could learn, knowing I would never be able to pass it on to someone else. But when I was resigned to the fact that I was going to die, a calm came over my heart and my mind. And I began to look and I began to observe. And what he goes on to say is, as I looked and as I watched, I realized that there was debris in the midst of, of the whirlpool, in the midst of the maelstrom. There were pieces of broken vessels that had found their way into this. There were, there were pieces of driftwood that were going round and round. There was all kinds of debris that was floating. And he said, the, the debris began to capture my curiosity. And I began to study it even as we were leaving the outer edges and getting a little bit closer to the center when eventually we would be sucked down into the ocean and die. And he said, the longer I looked, the more I began to see an odd sight. And the sight was this. As the objects were whirling down to be sucked into the ocean, I noticed that there were actually a handful of objects that were being spun back out of the maelstrom. And I began to study these objects, wondering what, if anything, they had in common that could possibly help me understand that there may actually be something that moves to the surface in this particular situation instead of down to the depths of the ocean. And he said, as I looked and I studied very carefully for a few minutes with a calmness that I shouldn't have had because of my own death, I realized that everything that was floating to the top and being spit out of the maelstrom was cylindrical in nature. And here I was clinging to a round water barrel. So he says he crept and he crawled and he made his way to the middle of the boat and he, and, he, and he grabbed hold of his older brother and he screamed as loud as he could, we have to get to the water barrel. We have to attach ourselves to the water barrel. It is our only hope. But his brother's eyes were wide with terror 
and he simply refused to let go. And so eventually he said, I gave out knowing I could not convince him, and I had to leave him to his own fate. And I made my way back to the water barrel, and I strapped myself to the water barrel, and then I cut the rope that held the water barrel to the boathouse, and I threw myself into the water. And as he goes around and around, and there's actually a, a pencil sketch of Poe's story. And when you look at the pencil, pencil sketch of this story, you see on the one hand of the Maelstrom, you see this man strapped to a casket, a ca or a cask, a, you know, a wooden uh, barrel. And about 180 degrees on the other side, you see the brother and, and the fishing boat. And they're, and they're passing each other as they go around and around and around. And the second brother says, I watched until the boat went out of sight, and my second brother died. He said, and as I got closer to the middle and closer to the middle, something strange and wonderful began to happen. I was no longer sinking to the depths, but rather this round object for whatever force of nature, whatever reason that the, the rules of the sea play began to shoot forward. And I began to get closer and closer to the outside edges until finally at one point I was literally hurled outside of the maelstrom and I began to float on a calm sea because the storm had passed. He said it wasn't very long when a fishing boat ventured by and picked me up and saved me. And it was some men from my own village. And as they brought me onto the boat, they had a look of, 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 of terror in their own eyes. And so I sat down and I told them the story, but they seemed to think me a stranger. They did not recognize me. And I cried out, it is I, and he told his name. It's in Norwegian, I'm not going to pretend to be able to say it this morning. And they refused to believe me, and I didn't understand why. Until I got home, and I was able to look in a mirror. And that morning I had woken up with jet black hair. And in one day, because of sheer terror and sheer fear, my my hair had turned completely white, and I looked like an old man. I was never the same. I thought about that story for a long time. I actually read it on the jet on the way home, and I've read it again about three times in the last two days. And as I said, I would encourage you to write it. Pose, pose a masterful, or read it. Pose a masterful author. I wouldn't read most of Edgar Allan Poe's stuff late at night. Okay, I made the mistake of reading The Pit and the Pendulum about midnight when I was 18 years old. That was a big mistake. Um, but this one is, is more about nature. It's not quite as terrifying um, talking more about natural fear. But you ought to read it. It's a masterful book. But I began to think about it in terms of being a disciple of Jesus, and I began to see some correlates. And I'm going to try to share some of those with you this morning and then read a couple verses for you. I thought about the whirlpool and the maelstrom and the notion of these three brothers who were veterans, wily veterans of the sea, and their self-confidence that they could overcome that obstacle. And the fact that they believed that their skill was enough for them. And I think about my own life as a disciple of Jesus, and I think, you know, that describes me from time to time. There are moments when I have great faith, but there are other moments when I, you know, I think I've got it figured out. And I, I don't bother to stop and ask the Lord what might be the right thing to do. Uh, my self-confidence is inappropriate. I may meet with success for some amount of time. These brothers spent many years where they were able to navigate clearly, but eventually a storm comes up that you can't manage. 
And that's the other piece of the story that I think is so real, that no matter where you are in life, eventually the storm is going to hit. And there'll probably be more than, than one in your life, but, but there seem to be, in most of the people whom I know that have been disciples of Jesus for a while, there seem to be one or two or three defining moments in life where if you don't have something on which to hold, if you don't have something that will ground you, you feel absolutely lost. You are in the middle of the maelstrom, and you know that you can't get out on your own power, your own strength, and your own wisdom. And I began to see the gospel in this story of Poe's. And I think about the fighting for that which was obvious, the younger brother quickly strapping himself to the mast because that seemed to be the logical thing to do. The middle brother grabbing the O-ring because that was probably the second best thing to do. And then the fight that ensued over that, which led him to something that was completely irrelevant to him at the moment, the water barrel. And yet those who did which what seemed obvious were the ones who were lost. And I think about all the, the temptations to believe in the things of this world. And to assume that that's my way out. And to believe that those are the things that bring ultimate safety and ultimate security. And they're not bad things in and of themselves. A mast of a sailing ship is a good thing. An O-ring is an important thing to have on a sailing ship. So it might be my family. It might be my career. It might be my reputation in my community. Be whatever it may, there are certainly things in my life that seem obvious to me to hold on to apart from that which will save me. I also found it fascinating that once the middle brother knew that he was going to die, he decided to look around. Once he understood his fate, composure returned to him, and he was able to see the situation for what it was. And how important that is in your journey of faith. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior and Lord, one of the things you need to realize is you are in a storm and you ought to look around a little bit and see from where that help might come. And I see this, this younger brother, or the middle brother, resigning the fact that he can't overpower his older sibling, and so going to, to this barrel that to him up until that moment was of no value whatsoever. And I'm sure it was a nice water barrel. I'm sure it worked. I'm sure it held water. But these were ships, or sailing, or um, fishing boats that went out and back in the same day. If you ran out of water, you can survive seven or eight hours without water. It's not like it was, it was all that precious or all that important. So it was a common thing. It was something that he would pass by any number of times on that, uh, on that boat and pay it no notice whatsoever. But now that he knew he was going to die, he had a new perspective. And is that not the first step in discipleship? Knowing, knowing that you're dead apart from Christ. And now being able to see the world for what it really is. And as he looked around, he noticed the instrument of his salvation. Something that was extraordinarily common to him just a few moments ago, of very little value, now became the thing that was most precious in his life. It was the thing that he would not, he would not relinquish for all the money in the world. You think about things in your life that may see com seem common until you really really need them. You may think of something that, that you see and you look at it and you go, that's nice, but you know, if somebody offered me some money for it, I'd, I'd, I'd give it away, right? 
a friend of mine is talking to me about uh, rock climbing and rappelling. He goes, you know, you go into REI and you look at all the different colors of the ropes and the really cool, you know, designs they have on them. And some are blue and some are red. And, you know, those, those are kind of cool. But if I own some rope and you offered me $1,000 for it, I'd give it to you in a heartbeat. I'd laugh at you and think you're a fool. But if I'm 700 feet on the edge of the cliff backing off, holding on to this rope, and I'm committed my whole weight and my whole existence to that rope doing what it says it's going to do. And at that moment, as I step off the ledge and begin to bounce and rappel down, you offer me a million dollars, I would say you're out of your mind. This rope is precious to me. And the water barrel, something that everybody kind of ignored and, you know, it's nice, it has its place, became precious to him. It became the thing that gave him life. But I also noticed in this story that after he is is saved, his countenance has changed, his appearance is changed, and he's never, ever the same. In fact, he's unrecognizable to people who have known him all his life, so radical, the change that's taken place. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, it says this, speaking about Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in the scriptures, and then he quotes the Old Testament. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. He's quoting what God is saying. A cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame it's the stone that the builders rejected but it has become the cornerstone i think about that word precious in that text and what strikes me about it is that peter doesn't say that jesus is precious to us jesus Peter says that Jesus twice, he says, is precious to God. But why is Jesus precious to God? Well, of course, because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are unified in, 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 in character. They, they, are, they are three, yet one, right? So, of course, Jesus is precious. But why is he exalted to the name that is above every name, to, to, to be the only one to receive praise and glory and honor for all of eternity? Why is he precious to God in that sense? It's because of the cross. It's because of something that people pass by every day. Some of you maybe have crosses on your jewelry, and every, oh, that's nice. That's a nice piece of jewelry. And I'm not saying you shouldn't wear a cross of jewelry. I think that's fine. But point being, we pass by the cross constantly without remembering how precious it is to God. The reason it's precious to God is because it buys your salvation, and it buys mine. Which leads me to the conclusion that I think Peter is after here, which is not that the cross is precious, but that Jesus is precious. And if he's precious to God, he should be precious to me. Which then leads me to think about my life. And now we get to the rub. <laughs> now we get to the heart of the matter. We sing songs here on Sunday that have the word precious in it, and Jesus is precious. We, we use that language all of the time. And I wouldn't even begin to venture a guess of how much of my, the percentage of my life is truly lived with the notion that Jesus is ultimately the only thing 
that is completely precious to me. I'm not saying I'm not saved. I'm not saying I'm not a disciple of Jesus, and I'm not saying that about you. If your faith is in Christ, you are a new creation. I'm talking about the journey home and our priorities, my priorities, my lifestyle, the way in which I look at at my world around me. Can I actually say that for any percentage of my life that's significant, that Jesus is the thing that is most precious to me? Friends, I will admit to you, I struggle with that deeply. And I have been for the last couple days as I've thought about this, uh, this story and I've thought about these particular verses, but that's what I want. Because if I'm resigned to my own death and I look around me at what's actually happening and I see that there is a way out and I see that there is hope, why wouldn't that thing become precious to me? Why wouldn't Jesus be the most beautiful thing in all my life? And yet, so often, we're, we're near the edge of the maelstrom, and we sink back into, or I should say, I sink back into that thinking of self-sufficiency. I can figure it out. I, yes, I need the Lord. There are times when I need the Lord. I certainly need Him for salvation, but I lead in my own strength. I lead in my own wisdom. I lead in my own understanding. Instead of strapping myself to Jesus and throwing myself into the deep end. Because at the end of the day, that's what will save me. That's what is most precious to me. And if I would actually live my life in that truth, if I would believe that with all my heart, with all my soul and all my mind and all my strength, you would probably look at me and say, you're, gosh, (laughs) I don't hardly even recognize you anymore. Who are you? And the answer would maybe be, I'm someone to whom Jesus is very precious. I don't think that comes through our effort or our work or trying to be good people. I think that comes through faith. I think that comes through believing in the one thing that can save us and giving it the right place in our lives. I think there will be outcomes to that. Uh, You know, I think if if, if, as we collectively as a church believe that and live in that, I think people will look at us and say, you're quite different. What, what is it about you? And I think people will actually be attracted to that and drawn to Christ through that and, and praise God for that. But be that as it may, to me, the most significant part of this, of this passage and, and where Poe's story just kind of kind of you know hit me between the eyes was I've got to cut loose that barrel and throw myself attached to it into the ocean, trusting only in it and believing that it only and ultimately is the thing that is most precious to me. So do with it as you may this morning. Um, They don't have a seminary preaching class that's called Wing It, but uh, that's what we did. Hopefully it was um, winging it because that's what God wanted us to think about. I would just leave you with with the question that I asked myself is what is truly, honestly, genuinely most precious? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word, even as it comes through uh, a writer like Edgar Allan Poe. (laughs) He's telling a story about fear and desperation. He's weaving a tale that is frightful. It's dark. It's certain death. People, People die in this story. And yet there is the story of redemption, the story of salvation, when something very ordinary ordinary, becomes very precious.
and yet in the brokenness of life and in the, in the trust in, in the water barrel, so to speak, the sailor is changed forever. Lord Jesus, there isn't a man or woman or child in this room who would not benefit from you being more precious in our lives. I pray that you would do that work through your word and through your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.